Welcome back to another episode of Startup for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and in this episode, Ruben Gomez comes back on the show by popular demand, and we talk about why launching a second product is usually, but not always, a bad idea. This episode idea comes to us from a listener who sent in a great suggestion about covering this topic, and it's one of those topics you could try to cover in six, seven minutes, like a typical listener question, but it deserves a lot of time. And as you can see, this episode is longer than a lot of our standard episodes because there was a lot to fit in. But before we dive into that, tickets to MicroConf US in Atlanta are now on sale. Atlanta, Georgia, April 21st through the 23rd of 2024. Leanna Patch is returning to co-host with me. My hope is that she does not fall off the back of the stage again. Rand Fishkin will be speaking and it's generally going to be an awesome event. I hope you can join us in Atlanta, microconf.com slash US, if you want to find the full speaker lineup and buy your ticket. This event will sell out. All of our in-person events have been selling out. And so if you think you want to come to Atlanta and hang out with me and a couple hundred of your other closest Bootstrap founder friends, buy your ticket soon. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Ruben. Ruben Gomez, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, it's always good to have you. By popular demand, you're back on the show this time to talk about when we should and shouldn't launch a second product. And this topic was actually raised by a listener, Daniel Hoyman. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name, but Daniel has written many times over the years with great suggestions for the show and was talking about a comment, an offhand comment I made a couple hundred episodes ago, to be honest, it was an episode with Jordan Gall, I think it was 499. And I quickly said something like, oh, launching a second product, it's usually a bad idea, but you, Jordan Gall, convinced me at the time that this was one of those cases where it's a good idea. And Daniel was like, have you ever thought about recording an episode, you know, that actually walks through the pros and cons? And Daniel, oh, is the CEO and founder of Intelligent Editing at intelligentediting.com. And after being a single product company for 14 years, he is actually building a second product as well, has decided it's the right time. So I wanted to bring someone on the show who, much like you and me and Jordan, have been faced with this decision themselves. Because I think, I think every founder eventually is faced with it. And the question is, what info do they have in their head to make this decision? Because I view it a little bit like a siren song of, I'm going a white label. I'm going to translate my app to other languages. I'm going to, you know, these things that are kind of common mistakes in my head. And so that's why you're on the show, man. Thanks for joining. Yeah, great topic. It comes up uh, a lot. I see it with uh, with founders from time to time. So it'd be good to go over. Yeah, and this is one of those where I have, I have developed over the years a default stance. It's not an always. All caps always, all caps nevers. I don't, I don't do those. But I have a, you really need to convince me why this isn't the case or why this isn't how you should proceed. I feel this way about launching a second product. Usually you probably shouldn't. The odds are good. It's going to take away your focus and be a distraction. We all have shiny object syndrome as entrepreneurs and we want to chase that next thing and the grass is always greener, right? Similar with, I already mentioned, like white labeling. You launch, everyone's going to preach about white labeling. Almost always a waste of time. Not always, but most of the time. Translating your app into other language. I hear this all the time. Probably four or five times a year, I'm talking to a tiny seed company and they would want to translate it into Spanish or Portuguese. And I say things like, are you prepared to do support in Spanish to market? in Spanish, to have all your documentation translated into Spanish, to have the app itself 
and the error messages translated. You know, it's just on and on and on. It's really this uh, Pandora's box. But again, Jordan certainly convinced me. Uh, He was asking my opinion as an investor advisor at the time. And I remember at the end of the call being like, I think you should do this. You obviously feel very strongly. And it seems like it could be the right call. And in his case, it was. You have been faced with the same decision. So I'm curious, do you also have a default stance when you come to this? Or is it purely case by case if founders approach you and ask if they should build a second product? Yeah, when somebody asks me, usually to me, it's I'm leaning towards you probably shouldn't do it. Most of the time, it's a bad idea. And what I noticed, I don't don't know if this is what you've noticed too, it's usually more of a reactive thing. They're reacting to something. They're reacting to like slow growth or in some cases it makes sense. Like if, you know, there's massive platform risk and right, like you have to react, that's sort of like a good time to react to that in that sort of way. But it's often like they plateaued or they're, they're stuck and they can't figure out how to grow past or, and they suspect that maybe they tapped out the market. That comes up a lot as well. Things like that. Yeah. That's what usually bothers me is it's usually someone who doesn't want to face the real problem head on and they're trying to find another route around it rather than saying, no, I just need to market more, sell more, change my pricing, find product market fit, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for this like shortcut around it in a grass is greener way. Yes, exactly. That's the thing. It's not a shortcut and it's not easier than the problem that they're facing usually. Right. This is interesting to set the stage here. Can we tell the story a bit of BidSketch and and Signwell and how you bootstrapped BidSketch nights and weekends? You launched it, I believe, in 2009. So you're like SaaS OG, bootstrap SaaS OG here. And you grew it to a point where it was, you know, a great income. You own 100% of the business. And then you had a big decision to make at a certain point involving I mean, it was like a rewrite. It was second pro, you know, it, it eventually evolved. Can you talk through that piece of it? Uh, I don't remember what, do you remember what year it was even? Was it like 2016, 17? Yeah, I don't remember the exact year. Part of it was that BitSketch was around for a long time. When we started BitSketch, there was no category of proposal apps. Not There was for the enterprise, but it looked very, very different. It was like a lot of consulting and the software side of it was very different to this day. It's still like that. And um, there was nothing in my initial thought was like something like FreshBooks, a little bit more like that, but for proposals. So we went into it and there was nothing when you go fresh into, into a category like that. There's, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of things that you need to figure out and do. And some things you get right, some things you get wrong. And over time, we had just going through several different teams and not paying down technical debt enough, really. We ended up in a spot where we had an older code base and it was harder to release the types of features that we needed to. And we needed to really rethink the product. We should have probably done that earlier because we had learned so much. Everyone in the category and most of the apps that came, especially early in the category, they they eventually just dropped out and failed and weren't around. But there was so much that needed to be figured out. Nobody knew what it looked like. By the time we kind of figured out, okay, this is what this space looks like. It was time to sort of, all right, let's approach it with everything that we've learned and have a product for for this market. That's when I started thinking about all of the duck, because we did a lot of research at that point. And, you know, we're thinking about how to approach the rewrite, how to approach the next version of BidSketch. And then it was about like, well, while we're 
doing this, there's also this need here. And we integrate with these sign services, but we get asked to just add that into BitSketch. And in the category, it's a very, very basic version of eSign. So the thinking was like, we can better support the full document signing process for our existing customers as a strategy and then open up the market as well and uh, compete in the e-sign market. So be in a bigger market and use everything that we've learned to just build a better product. So we started off with that approach. And uh, my first thought was, let's build the e-sign features, specific features first, and then add the document. Cre- there's, there's so much overlap between the products. Add the document creation features next. But once we started building the e-sign features the market started pulling us in a very different direction. And there was a decision at that point to continue with the original vision or just go into the e-sign market by itself. This is something that was so impressive to me as you went through it, because you and I have talked once a month for 13 years, 12 or 13 years. So I, I've followed this journey along with you. Yeah. And I was so impressed with the fact, I remember you went back to basically refactor bid sketch and you had devs working on it for something like six months, rewriting code, adding unit tests, upgrading because you were on an old version of Rails or whatever. And at a certain point, you're like, I'm going to change course. You didn't get caught in the sunk cost fallacy. You had a bunch of sunk costs and you'd made the best decision, but then you said, this is not the right decision anymore. And a big part of it was this market pull of, I I think we need to make it a standalone app and then we'll build everything else in. And then you were pulled yet in another direction of, it was pretty obvious that this market wanted something that maybe you hadn't envisioned early on. Do you want to describe to someone listening what that feels like? There are some folks who've never, who don't know what market pull feels like. What did that feel like? Was a lot of requests for something or, you know, what, how how would you describe it? Uh, You'll get a number of requests for certain types of features for, from certain types of customers. The thing is that it doesn't always, so we've kind of have shifted product strategy twice. And the first time I'd say it was really just a volume thing. It was just, we were just, most of the requests that were coming in were taking us in a different direction. And the types of customers that they were coming from looked a lot less than what what I had envisioned and what we were serving with BidSketch. So that combination just kind of made it clear, like, this is a different thing. The next time it was less of a volume thing. It was less like clear that everyone wants this because it wasn't, it's not so much about that. Sometimes it's, uh, in our case, it was these really high value customers are requesting this and there's this opportunity and we're not getting a ton of this. We're getting some of it, but there's, there's something there and it's investigating that and, and seeing, you know, how big the, that opportunity is and what it really looks like. And that sort of, you know, drove the, the next one. Yeah, that makes sense. And so so then you found yourself with BidSketch, which is proposal software, and it's a SaaS that's still doing great and generating you know, tens of thousands a month in revenue. And Signwell, which is electronic signature, and now you have two you have two products technically under one corporate umbrella, but really it's like almost like two companies, really. You know, it's not technically, but like it's it's they're two completely separate, completely separate domains and and all of that. I guess through your experience, and we're going to dig in in a second to like, we're going to generalize this and go to the pitfalls and exceptions of when it does make sense or not to do a second product as well as maybe some goals behind that. But for you now that you find yourself in this situation, running two products with a, you know, you have a single dev team and do you feel like it's complicated 
Do you feel good about where you are or do you wish that you could focus on just a single product at this point? I feel good where we are now because we are mostly focused on a single product is how it is really. BitSketch is just a more mature product. And if I was devoting equal energy towards growing both of them, then it would be a really tough thing. And I don't think I don't think that works that well. But all of my energy when it comes to thinking about growth and, and getting the business to the next level and all that is focused on Signwell. That's why that works. Right. In a sense, you have two products technically, but BidSketch really more is in, it's a stable product that just keeps running. I, I'm not going to say autopilot because that, that doesn't exist. You know, every, right. there is yeah. no autopilot. Eventually your marketing falls off. Everything decays, right? Your tech stack gets older. You can't find developers for it. The security stuff's in, introduced, uh, security flaws and blah, blah, blah. So it's not true autopilot, but it's maybe as, as low maintenance as you can have it. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's uh, much more low. If as soon as you, you stop adding a bunch of features and all that, like a lot of the the risks go goes out of the the product. So you f- fix a bunch of bugs, it just gets very stable, and then it's really just about making sure that you support the newer customers that are coming in and you know upgrading. And I want to point out here, you know, there's there's different ways to add a second product. Sometimes you add a second product, and that product far outstrips the first one in terms of revenue, growth, all the stuff, which is what has happened for you with Signwell. That happened with me with Drip. I had Hittail. Hittail was doing 25, 30 grand a month, great lifestyle business. And I was like, I'm going to start another one of those because Hittail really was, it was like a feature. It didn't have ongoing development basically. So it was as autopilot as probably about you, you could get aside from the marketing. So I was going to launch another one of those. It'll be fun. And then suddenly Drip takes off. And now it's like, well, what do I do with this other thing? You know, and so for me, I held on to Hitto for a few years and then I wound up selling it uh, in 2015. So that's usually one of them gets all your attention. But there are folks I know who will launch two and then hang on to both of them and have them be equal attention, split, try to 50-50 their attention. And I think that's, I think that's pretty dangerous. And that actually maybe gets to our first pitfall here. Like what are the pitfalls of doing this? Why is my default stance, why is our default stance, you know, that you probably shouldn't do it, is focus. Because as, as bootstrapped entrepreneurs or mostly bootstrapped entrepreneurs, like even if you had a team of 5, 10, 20 people, if you put all those people on one product, it's going to grow faster. It should grow faster. But if you split that focus between two, it's so hard. Dude, I even remember, so Lead Pages acquired Drip. They had 170 employees. And I remember getting in there and they were, they had Lead Pages and they had Center, which is this product they were trying to get off the ground. And some people there kept saying, this split focus is, is hurting us. You know, some people thought it was a great idea and for diversification and for whatever other reasons. And other people were like, it's really hurting us. And I was like, split focus? There's 170 of you. You have $38 million of venture funding. But you know what? It was split focus, even at that scale. Right. Uh, I remember when Lead Pages came out with Center around how many people did they put on that product? I don't honestly know exact numbers, but I know they kind of had an early access where they got... 100, right? Or, or 200 and got them on and they tried it out and they didn't have product market fit was an issue. And that's what they kept spinning on was trying to figure out where do we fit in the market? Because really it was Clay Collins, CEO, had a vision and it was kind of trying to start a new category. It was supposed to be the center. It was the marketing automation, but it didn't send emails. So it was like the center of your of your stack. So it was kind of like segment, but I think it kept state. You know, it's kind of hard to say. So you hear me trying to explain it, which tells me there is no category. It wasn't Zapier. It was like Zapier plus segment 
for marketers. So it was this new category. And that was a, as we know, that's hard to do. Right. That's super hard. Yeah. No, I, w- I was thinking more in terms of like the internal team, how many, like it was split, right? How many? Oh yeah. Uh, engineering team was, I think probably between six and 10 engineers. And then they had a marketing squad, you know, of four or five people that I think were coming over from lead pages. If I were to guess everyone who kind of did some work on it, even though some were kind of split, it was probably 20. Yeah. Okay. And then because they care about this new thing, like the, the executive team leadership and all that, they're thinking about it and they're working on it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's uh, focus right there. You know, there's two things going on with that example. There's splitting focus, second product, and then there's category creation, which we could probably record a whole other podcast about how hard that is. But let's just take the example of, you know, a mostly bootstrap founder with a team of five, a team of 10, a team of 20, whatever. Like to split focus, especially when, if your first product is working and you can, there's still room to grow it. I'm always like, don't, don't do this because you're just going to leave growth on the table, right? But if your first one stalls and it isn't growing anymore, what what then, right? Should you focus on that first product and keep growing it or do you split focus? I think it depends on like, the core reason why the growth has stalled. Yeah, it's really hard to generalize in, in this case. But a lot of times, you know, really when people, when their people's growth stalls, they often kind of don't know. I think you need to investigate and you need to, as best as you can, we, sometimes we just don't know for sure, but as best as you can tell, just kind of Stop working on the symptoms or thinking about the symptoms like, oh, we're not getting, you know, like our churn is too high or we're not getting enough signups or whatever. Well, yeah, of course, that's a symptom. Like, what's the core reason? What's going on here? And, you know, it's like, oh, I think we've tapped out on this market is a common one. It's like, really? Have you? That's usually not true. Yeah, yep. That's right. No, I see it. Where there's a, mil- there's a million potential customers in a market, someone has 500 customers and they plateaued, or they have 50 customers or something, and they're like, oh, I've tapped out the market, need, need to check out the Spanish market. And it's like, no, you don't. Like, solve the problem, right? What's the actual problem? Yeah, and uh, it's more likely that they've exhausted the marketing channels in the way that they've gone about marketing or sales or whatever, you know, they're current approach has been exhausting. Like, yes, okay, maybe if, if, if you tap that out, that's, a, that's something else. But are there other channels? Can you, you know, bring in uh, somebody that can help you uh, on the growth side, whether it's like somebody internally or somebody to help on the consulting or an agency or whoever, right? Like you have to start making bigger changes. It's hard to get there. They're just doing the same stuff or just like slightly different versions of the same thing. Like if you're, you're really plateaued. So, yeah, I think I think there are a lot of things at, at, at play there. And it's it all kind of comes down to, for me, the reason why uh, growth is stalled. I think that's a good a good take on it. I guess the, the last thought I have on focus and splitting focus, because I want to get to our other topics, but splitting focus of the team is one thing. Most people don't realize I, I've had people say, oh, I have this code base. And I built it for uh, CRM for realtors. And it would totally work for mortgage brokers. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, I'm going to register another domain, and I'm going to start to the product because the code's the same. So it's not really that much work. And I'm always like, you realize the code's about 10% of the business. 
just even like if you're going to do SEO, you're splitting your domain authority. All the links you've built, you're starting from zero. Start the Google timer over. All of your marketing, any cold outreach, any brand equity you have, any, any traffic you have, now split. Your support team now has to, you don't need double the support people, but they have to now know two products. You're making two decisions about what features to build into which products. You're splitting your dev team, like on and on and on. It is way more than you initially think about. It's the, it's the iceberg problem, right? Yeah, and I did that in, in the early stages when I was going doing BidSketch and SignWell. That's what we were kind of doing because we had to. It was too early in the SignWell days. But even then, it was just like clear, this is not sustainable. It just wasn't. Right. And you could, you know, I can imagine someone hearing this and saying, well, I'm not going to register two domains. I'm going to have two products under one umbrella, right? I'm going to keep the same domain. So you could have had bidsketch.com and you have two products, much like uh, I think of like Intercom almost having two, well, they have like what, like four products? Five, you know, I don't, Yeah, it's like yeah. they have the chat and they have the support and they have the this and that. HubSpot is similar, right? Where HubSpot is an umbrella and then they have all these different tools under it. So that wouldn't split it as much, but it still comes back to splitting focus and being a lot to bite off. You do have to market those individually. You have to position them individually. You are fighting battles on multiple fronts. And it's, I think of it, you know, I always say like two-sided marketplaces, here's my advice, don't. That's because you're kind of, it's like they're starting two SaaS apps at once. It's just, you're fighting things on two fronts. I think two products will make it tough, but there are exceptions. There are exceptions to it. So you did it. And I guess I would ask you, you made an exception, right? You went with two products. Was it the right choice for you? Yes. For us, it was the it was the right choice. You know, I could have gone either way with it as far as I went in a completely different direction, but it, I could have just kept kept it with BidSketch and just truly made it version two and gone in the other direction with the original. I think it would have worked out. There isn't a clear right or wrong choice sometimes. You can have multiple paths that can work or you can have paths that uh, are just going to be a lot more risky and difficult and all. I think just being deliberate and knowing what you're getting yourself into and why is a big part of it. Why was your choice the right one in retrospect? If someone else is facing this same choice, what were the factors that made it make sense for you and that kind of had, have led to it being the quote unquote right choice? There was a significant uh, amount of time and energy and work put into the decision and identifying the problem or the problems, right? Like the things that we were trying to solve for. So it was clear after a while that there was an opportunity, a lot of opportunity. And I sort of iteratively tested things along the way. So even though I felt, it's not like you do all the, all this work up front and then, you say, okay, this is what we're doing, and then heads down and just go in that direction and don't look, right? I was constantly sort of evaluating and thinking about, okay, is this right? Do I need to make adjustments? And so it turned out to, it worked out a lot uh, of the reason why I worked out is because, because of the reason. I was just deliberate. I was able to identify real opportunities and then verify that those opportunities were real and kept checking myself throughout the process and then just changed whenever I needed to, you know, to change. Yeah. And that's the thing. There are always exceptions to these. And you are particularly a deep thinker and someone who 
challenges and is willing to challenge their own hypotheses. And so when you come to me with a conclusion or close to a conclusion, I'm always like, I'll ask you questions, but I'm pretty sure you've answered all the questions I'm going to ask you already in your own head. And that's your personality, right? There are folks on the other end who just wake up in the morning and there's a dream where they're like, I think I should launch a second product. And every question I ask them about, they haven't thought about any of them, right? They haven't validated it. They haven't, they haven't really given a thought. And so I think this part of it, a little bit of this is knowing yourself. Like, are you someone who just bounce, bounce? Are you the indie hacker who's in the trap of launch? It didn't take off immediately on product hunt. I'm just going to give up and move on to the next thing because it's not working. And oh, it's a siren song of over and over because you get the launch dopamine, but you don't actually put in the work to really grow the product. Like if that's more of where you fall, then really listen to our advice, you know, to not do it. But if you don't and you are more of a pencil person, or even if there are some folks, I mean, the other- Or you com- lean the other direction, right? Yeah. Like too strongly, right? Yep. The opposite. Yeah. You should probably examine it and think about it. Yeah. Right. Because don't we have friends who have started one product and and tried to grow it for years and years and years, and they're at 2K MRR after six years? And there it's like, I don't know if you need a second product or you just need to kill the first one. But some people stick with stuff too long, right? So maybe you could break it loose. I give you another counterexample. I have two more on my head, but one is Jordan, right? Jordan Gall, who it was just- Yeah, I was wondering, what did he tell you that convinced you? So to set the stage- he had built Carthook, which was cart abandonment emails. And it was, I believe it was just for Shopify. I don't remember if it was just for Shopify for Olicom, but whatever. It was someone abandoned their cart, then they would send him emails and he'd gotten it up to low tens of thousands MRR. Then he found out, they either found or somehow got wind that there was an unpublished Shopify API that allowed you to modify their checkout. And modifying, because their checkout is, was garbage basically, and you couldn't change it. And everybody knew it was garbage, right? It was built in 2007 and had never been updated or whatever. So it like didn't have upsells. It didn't have all the conversions, anything you'd want in a checkout, it just didn't have. So he saw this huge opportunity. It's like, we're going to get in there. We're going to write code against this unpublished API. Then we're going to work to, once it's published, we'll be one of the first ones and we'll get approval to basically be an app. And, And people are clamoring for this. So he was then in some maybe Facebook groups or whatever, Slack groups were like these a lot of them is, D, it's a lot of D to C physical products, right? They're just selling through Shopify. And they all wanted post-purchase upsells or during purchase or post-purchase upsells. And they could add this in using this. And so he's like, the people I'm talking to are losing their minds if we could add this to Shopify. And I was like, I don't know, man. The card abandonment emails seem to be working. Why would you go do this? And we talked for probably 45 minutes and he just kept saying, and this is it, Jordan, his intuition is pretty good. You know what I mean? And when I say pretty good, I mean really good. <laughs> I'm, I'm understating. Yeah, His intuition of yeah. where they got this, certain founders you know, whether it's, I don't know if they've had it their whole life or they learn it. I think you and I have good intuition, Jordan. There's certain folks we know. That was a piece of it is he had this very strong gut feeling that this is, it was a green open field and it wasn't a grass is greener. It wasn't a that'll be easier. It's I want to get there first and I want to own it. And that was really the conversation. And I asked him all the questions that we're talking about here. Is it just hard and not growing? How are you going to do it? Are you going to sunset the other one? How are you going to focus on two? You know, it was all those questions. And he was like, look, we're going to put some engineering. We can build this. This was another thing. How long does it take to test this? When will you know? Will you know in a year or will you know in two months? And I believe he said it would be like two months of engineering, maybe three. And I was like, that's a lot of time at this early stage. But he had runway. He had raised a fund strapped a very small round from me and some other folks, it's pre-tiny seed. And it was that line of thinking where I was like, 
And then I said, what's the word? What if this fails? What's the flip side? What if this works? What if this fails? Is there asymmetric upside if this works? And the answer was absolutely, right? And the entire company, I mean, the end of the story is eventually, I think they just sold off or gave away their cart abandonment element of it. And the post-purchase upsells just took, or that, you know, just the cart, the checkout replacement took off like a Cinderella story, basically. Right. Yeah. I think maybe shut it down. It was so like, it was making money. Abandonment. Right. Yeah. Maybe sold it. It was seriously considering. Yeah. But compared to, right. The difference between uh, how well the new product was doing versus the old, it wasn't even worth putting that much time into figuring out what to do with it. I think you're right. I think he might've sold kind of partly sold it. No, that's interesting to hear because I was talking to Jordan a lot during that time as well. We talked regularly. And uh, I remember when that happened, I remember thinking similar things like, Ooh, okay. You're, you're Shiny doing, object. yeah, you're doing yep. pretty good. Um, but you're right because it was him funny because it was him because he doesn't have a history of just jumping to the next, you know, thing and just building out like, and his intuition is really good. I was like, okay, it's probably, there's probably something here. This, this could be really interesting. So I thought the same thing, but I think that's, it brings up a really good point as far as I think a lot of people who have a problem with it and, and add products sooner than they should do feel like they have an opportunity that they see an up like, but it's more than that. It goes back to a partly like how good is your product intuition? And this is based off of your history. What have you seen and how, where do you lean? Do you lean towards like just moving on and not finishing things and not pushing things through or the opposite? And depending on those answers, you really need to examine that more or push yourself more to do something new if it's the other way. Right. And get outside feedback. Because what did Jordan do? He talked to you. He talked to me. I know he talked to other people and he got input. You did the same thing when you were launching Signwell and you talked to a bunch of people, including me. And you were trying to get outside, not confirmation, but outside information about what am I missing? You know, why is this good or bad? Two other things I just said about Jordan's decision was, in addition to his vision or his um, intuition is like, does it have asymmetric upside if it works? Is the downside if it fails not catastrophic? And how quickly can you test this? How quick or how quickly will you know? Because usually, yeah, another product is six months, nine months, 12 months. Like that's a really long time. You better be damn sure right. it, that it's going to work. That's why it like when on decision in decisions like that, where it'll be a while before, you know, so you have to invest uh, time, energy, money or whatever for, for a while. And the opportunity cost there is that you're not growing your other thing or, you know, whatever. When the feedback cycle is slow like that, that's when, when it pays off to put in more work up front. And that's work, you know, in these conversations, doing little tests or doing whatever. If the feedback cycle is fast and you will know in a week, you don't even have to talk to anybody. Just try it. And it, it'll be a week before, you know, and then you move forward or whatever, right? It de really depends on how long that feedback cycle is. On the point of feedback cycle, there's one more example. And then I want to get to our kind of strategies or goals behind adding a product and then we'll wrap. One more example. I know of several other examples, but you and Jordan and then Stratosphere is the third example. Stratosphere is a tiny seed company. You can see them at stratosphere.io. And their H1 is the all-in-one data visualization platform for investors, research platform. It's kind of a rolling thing. When the AI stuff started getting popular, when the AI stuff, when, when ChatGPT and everything was buzzing six, eight months ago, they built finchat.io. My memory is they built and shipped it in six weeks. It was very fast. And they got 
instant traction. It was one thing that the, the downside, if it didn't work, was not that much. And I remember, again, they brought, they kind of brought it up and I was like, oh, another second pro, why are you doing that? You know, all the stuff we've said here. And they were like, it's not going to take that long to test the asymmetric upside. If this, if this really does catch, it would be the only thing doing this. And if it catches, it's going to be astronomical. In addition, they already had, they weren't just, they're not just a chat GPT wrapper. What they did is with Stratosphere, they have all this proprietary data that they've cleaned that you can kind of only get through their API or their interface. And FinChat is a chat interface to that proprietary data. So even at that point, if it works, it is just another, I suggest, it's just another interface into what they're already building. And long-term, we talked early on, I said, well, what if this works? Can you merge this all back into the same product? You know, is this just a different price point, for instance, on your pricing page? Or is it, because it's right now, it's a separate, you know, domain name. But we talked through that possibility. It's not like it's some way far out of left field thing that really needs to be its own thing. It could feasibly come back and be part of the home base if it works. And if it doesn't, it was a fun experiment. So that was another one where at, at the end I said, assuming we live up to these things, you know, I sign off. <laughs> not that I needed to sign off. They were going to build it whether or not I did. But it was um, another example of, of, I think, speed, you know, being able to test it quickly. Yeah, which is a big deal in, in situations like this. One quick thought that I had a uh, question for you was you talked about asking for feedback in, in, um, from others. We've seen this a lot where uh, founders basically make up their mind and are talking to others and they're asking for feedback, but all they're really wanting to hear is people say, yeah, I think it's a good idea. And the ones that don't, you know, they're either, I'm not sure how they, it's explained in their mind, they're, they're either not seeing the vision or whatever, and then any little confirmation, they, they, you know, they take that and they run with it. What do you think, like... Do you have any thoughts about not falling into that trap or what being good at asking for feedback and taking that feedback looks like? Yeah. And you know why I have it is because some point in my history, 10 years ago, say 15, I was exactly the person you described where I would have a vision for something. I would ask for feedback and then I would argue with all the feedback because I felt like, oh, you're attacking my idea. I'm going to defend it because I know I'm right. And then at a certain point I switched. And that was seven, eight years ago, whatever. So I've kind of been, I feel like I'm on both sides of that. Anar and my team may disagree um, <laughs> with that statement that, I've, that I'm better at. No, I, I just feel like I'm better. What I've realized is it's not, I used to think about it black and white of, I have this idea, I'm going to ask for feedback. And if it doesn't fit my idea, then either they're wrong or I'm wrong. The idea is wrong or they're wrong. That's not actually what it is. Here's what I do these days. I'll come up with an idea. I present it to Anar, to producer Xander, to, to producer Ron. They'll give feedback. And I'm like, oh, with creativity, with growth mindset, that tweaks my idea. I'm going to change my idea. I'm not just going to scrap my idea. It was a idea. It didn't work because there was feedback. It actually will tweak it and make it better. So like the format of a YouTube video, for example, I was like, this is how we should structure our YouTube videos. And then someone started, they were like, well, you need a story, you need a hook, you need a, a teaser at the end, you need a this and that. And I was like, oh, you're improving. <laughs> you're improving it. It's not, I should scrap my whole outline. It's I should just tweak it. That's a, that's a trite example. But similarly, if I, had a, if I came to you with a business idea and I was like, I'm going to build an ESP, you know, for realtors or whatever. And you started having thoughts around it it shouldn't be, I should do it or not. It shouldn't be this black and white thing. It should much more be around, am I able to take your feedback and creatively incorporate it into my idea 
or is or if I'm really getting bad signals, I should just scrap it all together. But does, does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but that's a really good way to to think about it. How about you? What's your advice for someone who maybe tends to fall in that trap of I lock onto my ideas and I really don't take outside feedback, even though I ask for it. I act like I'm I've taken outside feedback, but I have my mind made up already. How do we get around that? That is tough because I don't I can't think of a time where I'm thinking in that sort of way. I, but I can talk about how I think about it when I am getting feedback and maybe that that can be helpful. Yeah. Because you're really good at it and you've ever since I've known you, and I think we've known each other for 15 years, maybe a little more, you've never been defensive about your ideas. You've always taken feedback in stride and you're able to identify quickly, usually, oh, that is actually a better idea than I had, or that makes my idea better. And you've, you've had that knack for since, since I met you. So yeah, let's talk, talk us through how you do that. So I don't, uh, I don't believe that my idea is finished or is, is perfect to begin with. So it's, I think of it more as a starting point. That's the first thing. I think David, I really like something that David Cancel, I heard him say a long, a long time ago, which was the way that he thinks about it is that if he has an idea or anything for a feature, for a product, whatever, he figures that it's wrong and he's just trying to figure out how wrong it is. Is it 90% wrong? Is it 10% wrong? So I, I like that sort of mindset and kind of mirrors the way that I that I tend to think about it. The other thing is that it's good to get multiple data points from multiple people, then consider their context, their experience, and then think about how it relates to mine. So I think about all those things when I'm taking in feedback uh, because the context is really important. So as long as I feel pretty good about the people that I'm getting the uh, information from and the feedback that I'm getting, then uh, I can feel pretty good about, you know, integrating that or, or whatever, or at least considering it. And then the other thing is if something really bothers me, if somebody said something that I didn't expect and it's kind of rubs me the wrong way, or I have a f bad feeling about it, that to me is a sign that I should examine that more. There's something there that I'm like, I'm too, I'm too married to this part of the idea. You know what I mean? I'm not willing to evaluate like every part of it or some, something along like this. The, to me, it's a red flag, danger. Emotional. You're like having emotional connection yes, to it, exactly. which isn't right. helpful. Yeah. And, and that's a good sign that for me to take a, take a look at what's, what's happening there and really try to consider it. It's a very insightful, mature way of thinking about it, you know, rather than reacting, kind of doing the self-examination. So as we, as we move to our last segment here, you know, obviously we're running long on time and I'm intentionally just letting it do that. Let's talk about if you decide to, that's adding a second product is viable and it is the right way to go. Let's talk maybe about like strategies doing that behind doing that and goals, you know, maybe the goal of adding a second product. I already talked a little bit about the indie hacker trap. Uh, you know, I think of like launching, bouncing to the next, to the next, to the next. That doesn't fit at all with a strategy. That usually is just, you know, a reaction to something. But you had a note in the, we have a little outline we're running from, and you have a, a quote, like portfolio of products or quote, diversification, right, behind adding it. Like, talk me through that. Do you think that's, that's a good reason to do it? You think that's a mistake? So this is something that, I, that I've seen go around a lot with, uh, in the uh, indie hacker circles, which is they're talking about a portfolio of products, and you're the OG of, of portfolio of products, like 
you did this way back in the in the day, two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when I found when I found out about you and uh, what you were doing. I was like, oh, this is cool, and you were you were doing a lot of that. And um, the other thing is diversification, and the portfolio products is, is seems to be the reason why that's done is because of diversification. So it's it's a very fear, almost a fear driven way to approach product and it misses. Uh, so that's what's behind it, uh, which is like a red flag. And then it misses a really big component of, of SaaS, at least, which is momentum and building. Like you can never, if you split your effort and your energy, time, money, all that amongst multiple products, it's really, really, really hard to get any one of them to a scale and level that you probably want to get to. Because things sort of get easier as you grow more, you add more revenue, it builds on itself. Momentum is a really, really, really big deal. And it's hard to describe until you've felt it, but you'll never get to, to the you know momentum that you need to get into, like build a million dollar SaaS business or whatever, if you're doing that. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, you're referring, like I had somewhere, it depends on how you count exactly, but about nine or 10 different revenue streams, different products. Almost all of them, it was, a, most of them were software. I had like one content website, I had an e-commerce website, I had some eBooks, and then I had software. Some of it was one-time sales, some of it was SaaS, a lot of, some of it was B2C. And this is where I learned all the lessons, right, that we started talking about at the microconfs, like don't do B2C, raise your prices, et cetera, et cetera. And I found exactly that. It was fun. And, you know, I talk about the stair-step method all the time, right? Step one is just cutting your teeth, doing something small, making $1,000, $5,000 a month. Step two is having usually multiple of those step one businesses. doesn't always have to be, but usually it's multiple to get to that magic number, maybe 8K for some people a month, maybe 10, maybe 12, 15, whatever. So step two is building, I'd say, a small portfolio of products. You get a little diversification, you get some more learnings, and you get to buy out your own time, right? You own all your time, then you go after the big standalone. That's how I see the progression that I see, and I think most people will follow. Now, there is this flip side, the indie hacker lifestyle dream, right, that you're talking about, where, oh, you get the portfolio and you're, you know, perpetually traveling or you're just working the four-hour work week. That's not a bad thing, but it, it to your point, it, it hampers momentum. You will rarely, if ever, get to that seven-figure goal if that's something you want to do. And honestly, there aren't that many people, like there's not, there are not thousands of people doing that. There are a handful of people, you know, that are truly doing that kind of, I have, I built a big Twitter following and now everything I launch, people jump on, like... If you want to try to be the Tom Cruise of indie hackers where there's like, oh, there's like one, there's one star that does this, you know, or there's four we can name and everyone else, it's like, but how many hundreds, no, thousands of founders do you and I know, right, who have done this other path, right, of getting to that point of having that SaaS up and focusing and building it, it's, it's just a more viable thing. We've talked probably more about indie hacking than we even should have with this, but I think that's where a lot of the multiple product stuff comes in. That's not where like Daniel Hoyman with Intelligent Editing is not going, right? He has a 14-year product and truly is talking about adding a second product line to his company, which, which again, it is just a different conversation. Yeah. But I mean, let's say, so you, let's say you add the second product and... You know, I guess we already talked a little bit about like starting a whole new business where it's a new domain. But let's say you kind of add the product to your lineup to where you can like cross sell the two of them. Right. That's a benefit someone could talk about. Like, you know, what's the pros and cons of that? And, you know, when when does that make sense, I guess? Yeah. And, you know, there are companies that do this successfully. It's a it's proven way to go, but it has it's not easy. 
it's harder to sell an even a new solution to the to the customers that you have. It's almost like um, it's almost like designing a new tier, a new plan that people would upgrade into, but a little bit more, it's a little bit more of a jump there than just upgrading to a different plan and adding new features. So like uh, if you think of Intercom, right, they'd famously do this. Their pricing is a mess <laughs> because because of it. Zoho, I think, does this pretty well. HubSpot. HubSpot, right. So there are these products that get there. I think moving in that direction too early is a mistake. That's one of the more common mistakes, probably driven by a lot of the same reasons why people just do a separate product to, to begin with. Assuming that people will buy the product from you just because they're already a customer is another mistake. Right. That you think you're just going to sell a copy of the new one to every existing customer or some huge, huge percentage, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, there's a really interesting article blog post by Jason Cohen. It's called The Elephant in the Room, The Myth of Exponential Hypergrowth. And he talks a lot about how exponential, he's looking really at the word and that part is fine, that, that he's saying like it's not actually exponential. But there's one slide later called The Elephant Curve that is very interesting. And it's basically about how every product eventually tops out. That maybe you top out at 500k ARR, and maybe you top out at 5 million, and maybe you top out at 50 million. And it depends on your goals. But if you want to be HubSpot, which is we want to go public, and your HubSpot marketing, inbound marketing tool basically tops out at 50 million or 100 million, that's not enough. And so that's, remember, they, they made a, not a pivot, but an additional, like CRM was their big thing they went all in on seven, eight years ago. And they really won a lot of the space from, well, from all the other players and from Salesforce. And that is when, though you're saying like doing it too early, people do this too early though, is the problem. Right. No, um, the, all the companies that we mentioned that have done it successfully, they're of a certain scale and trying to build like a certain size company. In the way that you described it was was right that it's not like at at some point these really big companies that are often VC funded and they need to go towards going public or something like that like just where they're playing is not enough to get them there so they kind of need more and so you you often see that with these companies but this is a very different position that a lot of uh, startups are in when they start to think about this sometimes. You know, it, it just goes back to all the, all the same things too. Like it causes, uh, you have to uh, be spread thin and, you know, resources, time, focus, all that. It makes the rest more difficult. Right. And you had a note here that I'm curious, it's under like moving to a bigger market, breaking out of a niche, expanding the market. Obviously, we've talked about a few successes here with HubSpot and, uh, you know, these others, but you talk about some failures with Moz. Did they try to build a second product? I don't remember this. Yeah, so this is the whole, like, this is the future, this is the next thing, right? Yeah, Moz, their thing was like, they were going to be a marketing suite. They weren't going to be a suite for SEO. They were going to be marketing. And, this, and Rand talks about this in his book to where he's like, that was like, you know, one of his biggest mistakes. And he was believed so much in this vision that he just went off and spent a lot of time and money and all that focusing on just building this, this thing. Yeah. So that, that just didn't, didn't work out that well for them uh, because of that reason. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think that it is tricky to, to, to make work. Yeah. And I think he talked about, they didn't validate it enough 
I think that way, if I recall, I read his book, it was probably five years. So I'm going from memory, but that he, I, this is Rand. So he's very self-deprecating and self, uh, has a lot of introspection. And I, I remember him saying something like, I was the founder, I had the vision and Moz worked and I thought I had the golden touch. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. But so my next thing, I thought I had the golden touch and was going to be right. And when we did it, it didn't work out. And it was because I had some hubris, you know, oh, look, all of us, all of us do this at one point or another. And I think that's why we're recording this episode is to let you know, hey, just because you got one right, you know, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't really think through trying to expand to a second product, but obviously it can work, right? As it did with Cardhook and Stratosphere and with Signwell and with others. So, yeah, there was, there was one really interesting one real quick with uh, FreshBooks that I, that I saw uh, that they did because they were like invoicing and they went into like now their cloud accounting and what they did was they created a product that was and called it something different. It wasn't even FreshBooks. And they put it out in the market and started testing it and getting signups. And once they started seeing growth going in the direction that they thought, okay, this we have something here, then they're, they were like, okay, rename, this is FreshBooks, the new thing. Uh, so I thought that they took a very interesting sort of approach to doing the new product. That's a nice way to do it. Very elegant. Well, Ruben Gomez, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Not only joining me on the show, but going over time. I know you have a busy schedule and we're already over uh, our allotted time. Folks want to keep up with you. You are EarthlingWorks on Twitter and, of course, BidSketch.com and Signwell.com if they want to see two of the best SaaS apps on the internet today. That's right. Uh, thanks. Yeah, uh, I'm mostly on Twitter, but uh, you know, I post infrequently on there. Sounds good, man. Thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks for the invite. Thanks again to Ruben for coming on the show and to you for listening this and every week. As a reminder, I am on a drive to get 100 five-star reviews for the SaaS Playbook in Amazon and or Audible. If you've read the book and you feel like it deserves five stars, please head to your local Amazon or Audible site and give it that five-star rating. I'd really appreciate it. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 681. Ruben Gomez, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, thank, oh, did we start? Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. That was such a smooth, yeah, that is smooth the best transition. <laughs> Cut. Cut. Take two. Um, all right. So now it's going to be me saying, let's dive into the episode. And then I'm going to say, Ruben Gomez, welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. Did you do that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were talk, telling me what you're going to do. And, and I'm like, okay, cool. Let me know.